I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. How do you gut someone? Always trust my gut. Hello and welcome to Gutted. I'm Elise. And I'm Tony and we're here to spill our guts about horror films. Today, we will be discussing 1973's The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin and adapted from the novel by William Peter Blatty. This episode will be a best of The Exorcist episode in three acts. First, we'll have a spoiler-free intro discussion, followed by a spoiler-full discussion of our top scenes, and then lastly, our award ceremony. And can you tell us, what is a best of? This is our first best of episode. So basically, we're going to go through and talk about our favorite scenes, our the top scenes of The Exorcist. So we're going to go through and pick five to seven scenes that we deem to be the best of The Exorcist because the whole movie is pretty good. Yeah. And I think people can argue for nearly every scene in the movie to be in that top five or seven. Right. Uh, but these are our top five to seven scenes in The Exorcist. And we'll talk about each of those scenes in more detail. So I'll, I just want to <laughs> narrow it down a little bit and say why these movies are so good and so loved. I mean, this is undeniably one of the best horror movies that's ever been made. So I wanted to ask you what is your relationship to this movie? My relationship to this movie is actually fairly recent. Uh, It came out in 1973, so obviously it was before I was even born. Uh, But then as a kid, I had always heard stories about the movie. I, I know my mom had told me stories how when the movie came out, people were running down the aisles and screaming and had to leave the movie theater. People were fainting. It was such a um, controversial movie at the time, just like the subject material and the fact that they had used a young actor doing all these crazy things. So I obviously had not seen it as a kid, but also I was afraid of it because it was, um, I guess there's a term that was used in one of the documentaries. It's like a theological horror. Theological thriller, yeah, I think is what they said. theological thriller. And I grew up Catholic, so it was one of those where like, I don't want to see that. That sounds scary. What's scarier than the devil? What's scarier than demons? And then as an adult, I became less afraid of it, but also not interested because I thought, well, what's, yeah, what can you beat? Or, or what, how do you beat the devil? So, so you were not interested in seeing The Exorcist? No, not for a long time. Mm. And so many people had talked about it as being their favorite or one of the best. And I was like, nah, I don't know. But I had <laughs> never really seen it. I had always avoided it for various reasons. So whether I was too scared uh, because of my Catholic upbringing or whether I just thought, well, what's the point? It's the devil. Did, Can't beat him. So did you avoid other movies that dealt with the devil or the occult? It's honestly one of my least favorite subgenres of horror. I don't typically flock to go see the theological thrillers or the <laughs> the horror movies that deal with demonic possession because I just feel like, well, it just seems like there's no way to beat it. If you're 
watching Jaws, there's a way to beat Jaws. You, you blow them up <laughs> or I don't know, you stab them with something pointy. Uh, but if you're fighting a demon, then the rules are not the same. The rules are kind of like all bets are off and you probably won't live. <laughs> so. There's got to be a way to to beat it, though. In some of these movies, there are definitive ways of beating the devil, and that is through the power of God. It's kind of like how I view Freddy Krueger. You know, even though I love Freddy Krueger, I do feel like he's an impossible villain to beat, really. And they always have a way to where at the end the hero or heroine can kind of beat Freddy for the time being. But you can't get rid of him. You can't just stop going to sleep. So can you really beat Freddy? I don't know if you can. Yeah. Isn't that kind of a lot of uh, horror villains? So take... Art the Clown, for example. Yeah, but Art the Clown doesn't seem as nebulous or unattainable as Freddy or the devil. Not that I'm comparing Freddy to the <laughs> devil, but like they're like almost in the same realm, you know, where it's like the rules are not the same as things in the earthly realm. Now that we've had these long series and villains that just keep appearing in horror movie after horror movie like a Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Art the Clown, our most recent horror icon. It's just like, can you beat any of these villains? The thing is, they keep coming back. Well, Art the Clown, he's only come back once. He's only had two movies. Right. But but he's now he's like a supernatural being. So is he he can't really be killed? He kind of was, huh? They kind of set it up that way anyway. Oh, that's true, huh? Well, I just feel like if I were to apply these things to my real life. I I see what you're saying, though. You're saying that from your upbringing, something as the essence of evil is something that's not concrete. And therefore, how do you even start to to defeat this thing? Yeah. And if you are just a mere mortal, you're just a person. Yeah, I guess you can in these movies try to pray it away. But that rarely seems to help. So what made you come around to The Exorcist? Because you eventually got over the fact that a movie about a demon or the devil, it was pointless. You came around to see it. I did. And so, okay, when we had first started our podcast, it wasn't even in my top 10. So if you go back and listen to our first episode, it's not in my top 10. But I watched the documentary with William Friedkin on Shudder. And I became very interested in what he was saying as a filmmaker and how he made the movie as a filmmaker. And then I went back and I watched The Exorcist in its entirety and actually sat down and watched it with a more critical eye. And I was like, oh, wow, this movie is actually really good. It's really beautiful and very well acted. The way that the tension builds very slowly over the course of the movie is very impactful. And the beginning of the movie, even though it does build very slowly, None of it's boring. So all the moments leading up to the more terrifying scenes, they're not boring. It's all part of the build. Uh, And it just really became an awe of the movie. And I watched it a few more times over the course of that year and last year. And now it actually is in my top 10. So something got booted out. Wow. We'll have to have another, (laughs) we'll have to have a redo of our top 10 one day. But I feel like top 10 lists are always changing. They're like these, they're like waves. They can always change. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there should be a separate top 10, a top 10 for your sort of like cherished movies, because a lot of them are for nostalgic reasons or some other reason, not necessarily because it's a a good movie. I actually sat down one day, I'm in like a top 50 
<laughs> I did it. And I was like, I actually feel pretty good about my top 50. <laughs> and I have snuck in some newer ones into the top 50. All right. That sounds like some other lists that we can do. Yeah, we'll do a top 50 one day. Okay. Well, you know, I'm I'm there with you on this one in that I had avoided The Exorcist for quite some time for a lot of similar reasons. Uh, my I've always heard stories about this horror movie as being the scariest horror movie the one that caused people to faint. I had actually heard a story that um, nuns had gone and seen the movie in the Vatican. <laughs> Field trip to the Vatican. And um, Vatican. watched it over and over and started projectile vomiting. Wait, why did these nuns watch it repeatedly? I don't know. I was a kid when I heard this. Why was it showing it in the Vatican? It scared me. <laughs> <laughs> I was also afraid of things like the devil or the end of the world. Those were topics that really frightened me as a child. Yeah. Uh, thanks to my also Catholic upbringing. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you, Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. For scaring the living shit out of me. Yeah. But yeah, so the exorcist was always kind of like something that was too scary. So I hadn't seen it until you saw it. So this is like two years ago. Yeah. I don't know exactly why. I think I was still sort of slightly afraid to see this movie. Did we watch the documentary together? Like, did we watch that documentary before we actually watched the movie? Uh, I can't remember, but maybe around the same time. Yeah. I feel like we watched the William Freakin documentary and we're like, oh, yeah. gosh, that guy was a weirdo. That documentary is called Leap of Faith. Yeah, I and that like, came out in 2019. I feel like we watched that documentary or at least part of it. And I think some of the more salient points of the document documentary was his directing style, how he would fire a gun just to get a reaction out of his actors. <laughs> and I think little tidbits like that, you're like, oh, I wanted to watch that movie now. <laughs> He's, He's very deliberate. He is very deliberate when he speaks. He seems kind of funny, like a funny dude. <laughs> Maybe like a deadpan. Yeah, he's got like a deadpan sense of humor. So we both watched this movie way into our adulthood. Somehow we had missed this. But, you know, I used to pride myself on um, not seeing certain movies that everybody had seen. Yeah. Like The Godfather. Yeah. There's still the there's Godfather? so few out there. Like I hadn't seen Jaws until I was an adult. Yeah. You watched a lot more fringe movies. Like you were deep into Hackers. That's and not a fringe movie. That is a cult classic. Well, I had not seen Hackers until you made me watch it. <laughs> yes, it is entertaining, but... <laughs> it was a movie that was a staple of my childhood. Yeah, you were watching, yeah, movies like Sallow, things that were very disturbing, but yet you had not seen Jaws or The Godfather. <laughs> there are certain movies that we see clips from in our lifetime and we see so many clips. And these are the big influential movies like The Godfather and Jaws and The Exorcist that you feel like you'd seen it, even though you haven't really seen it. That's actually how I felt about The Exorcist. I didn't know I had not seen it until two years ago. <laughs> I thought I had seen it. I was like, eh, it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of boring and it's kind of creepy but then i had watched it after watching that documentary and i was like oh actually i had never seen this see i had never actually thought that it was going to be bad i was always just afraid of it that's why i was avoiding it i was afraid of it for a long time and then i and then i got over the fear and the fear kind of morphed into thinking that it was overhyped so yeah so the exorcist we both love it it's definitely something that even though we came to it late, 
has still had a lot of impact in just the way that we think about horror movies. And also after watching The Exorcist, or if you just compare The Exorcist to other movies that are remotely around the same theme, you see how so many other films have been influenced by this film. I think the big reason for that is because not only is it a good horror film or a scary movie, it's just a good movie. It's a good movie. And in fact, if you watch um, interviews with Linda Blair or Peter Blatty or William Friedkin, they're very insistent that it's not a horror movie. Peter Blatty said that it's it's not a horror movie. And in fact, it being called a horror movie ruined his comedy career. His comedy writing career. <laughs> his comedy yeah. writing career. And Linda Blair is very adamant as well that it's not a horror movie. She's like, it's not. It's a theological thriller, maybe, but it's definitely not a horror. And if you think that yeah. you're wrong. So, yeah, those three were very adamant that it was not a horror movie. And one of them quoted Ray Bradbury. I guess Ray Bradbury, the author, had seen it and called it a love story. And we can talk a little bit later on why the, it, why it could be considered a love story. <laughs> uh, yep, I rank it up there with you got mail. You got mail. It's a rom. No, not rom. The notebook. <laughs> that that's just a way to put it in a category that is above what you know the lowly horror movie, something that's sort of schlocky and made with the sole purpose of trying to scare you. Yeah. Uh, which the intent of this movie is not that, but that thing happens along the way. I think it it's definitely horrific. It has a lot of horrific elements. And I I know I kind of play fast and loose with the horror definition. So it's a horror movie for me. <laughs> I put a lot of things in the horror genre. <laughs> All right. So let's get into The Exorcist for those who have not seen The Exorcist. Please do yourself a favor and watch it immediately. Yeah. For my birthday. Like right now. Watch yeah. it. Like right now. For my birthday, I think last year, I forced my friends who don't like horror movies to go watch The Exorcist with me on a rooftop. And for people that don't like horror movies, The Exorcist is probably not the best one to start with. So <laughs> I apologize. You could have started them with Ernest Scared Stupid <laughs> or something like that. Or at least like Scream or Halloween. But I started them with The Exorcist and they had nightmares that night that someone was eating their hand. I felt bad. <laughs> I don't think they'll ever see a movie. Well, don't show again. them bones and all because they'll have nightmares about they'll someone eating their hand. They'll have nightmares about hand eating. <laughs> so I apologize <laughs> to those friends if you're listening. All right, let's get into this. Um, so there will be spoilers in this episode. So just as always, and sometimes we inadvertently spoil other movies. So sorry about that in advance. Sorry. It just happens naturally. <laughs> just watch every single horror movie. Watch you'll be every fine. movie. So Elise, give us a synopsis of The Exorcist for those who have not seen this movie. Chris McNeil and her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan, live a charmed and happy life in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Chris, a single mother, works as a successful actress while the sweet and effervescent Reagan is your typical all-American girl of the 70s. She dabbles in visual arts, dreams of owning a horse, and occasionally talks to her invisible buddy, Captain Howdy, with her Ouija board. All is perfect and peaceful until one day, Reagan begins acting strangely. Her pleasant and innocent demeanor slowly begin to fade. Is it hormones, undiagnosed ADHD, or something more sinister? Countless doctors, a psychiatrist, and a very disturbing arteriogram later, and no success. Jesus Christ, won't somebody help them? Cue the cynical priest, and maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's an excellent day for an exorcism. So we highly advise, if you haven't seen The Exorcist, to go watch it, and you will love it. Some of the scenes in the movie are quite 
disturbing even to this day. Yeah. They're hard to watch. Even to this day, we've seen a lot. Yeah. And it still, still holds up. Still holds up. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Uh, some character breakdown quickly. We have Chris McNeil played by Ellen Burstyn. Uh, Reagan McNeil played by Linda Blair. Father Damien Karras played by Jason Miller. Father Marin is Max von Sydow. And Lieutenant Kinderman is Lee J. Cobb. Father Dyer is played by William O'Malley, who I believe was an actual priest. Oh, let's talk about some of the scenes in The Exorcist that made you fall in love with this movie. What are your top scenes for The Exorcist? All right. I have my top as I watched it today. Is this in chronological order? Yeah. Okay. I've put them in chronological order. <laughs> All right. So... What we're going to do, since this is a movie that I chose, I'm going to go through my top five scenes of The Exorcist. And then when Tony picks his movie, then he'll go through his top five. But I have five scenes. I put them in order. And then if I get to a scene that was your top scene, let me know if I got to that one. Okay. Okay. All right. So my first scene in chronological order of the movie is when Chris is tucking Reagan into bed for the first time in the movie and it's a very sweet moment they're just having this really sweet and natural conversation about reagan's birthday reagan's birthday is coming up and chris is like oh well, maybe we can do this maybe we can go to the movie and then the way that reagan just kind of looks at her she looks like she's actually listening to her like it's her mom and then she just hugs her and goes oh i love you mom <laughs> and then almost out of nowhere she goes if you want you can bring burke dennings who is the director on the project that Chris is currently acting in. And Chris is kind of taken aback. She's like, why would you say that? She's like, Burke Dennings and I, we're just friends. Reagan's like, well, I might have heard otherwise. And she kind of looks off to the side and looks kind of coy or sneaky in a very kid-like way. I just really like that moment, the way it just looks like a very natural mother-daughter relationship, a very loving and natural mother-daughter relationship. I think that it really shows Linda Blair's acting abilities. It was very naturalistic and she has this sort of charisma and that really draws you in. If if uh, if her acting was not that good and she's supposed to be what, like a 12 year old girl? I think she's 12. Yeah. And who knows, she looks like she was fairly young, so she was probably a teenager at the time when she filmed the movie. But her acting skills are so strong that you are instantly hooked into her character and it makes the scene work. And Ellen Burstyn's acting is also just like unreal. It's, it's really good. Especially as the film progresses, she has such an emotional arc and her her delivery it just ebbs and flows with every scene and uh she transforms into a different person almost in every single scene that goes by but in the beginning we get this sweet and loving ellen burston and uh, linda blair she's just this cute little apple cheeks preteen girl so smiley and very natural and nothing seems over the top in either one of their performances which i think is hard to do especially as a young actor i don't know if linda blair had really done anything before this and even when she's describing her day when she saw this beautiful horse and she's kind of uh, subtly hinting to her mom that she would really like to have a horse <laughs> But the way that she hints is not like, oh, man, that'd be awesome to have a horse, mom. I really want one. She's just like, oh, yeah, you should have seen it. It was really cool. Almost like she's picturing it in her head right then. Yeah. Like a kid would do. 
I'm like, oh man, this kid's good. What makes this scene stand out from some of the others? Because this one, it's so subtle and natural and it really sets up the relationship between Chris and Reagan. If we didn't have this scene, you wouldn't care as much about how it's tearing apart this relationship. When we see this moment in the bed, when she's tucking Reagan in and we see that even though Reagan's parents are separated and Reagan does have feelings about that. She's not like, oh yeah, go ahead, forget dad. She loves her dad. She would love obviously for her parents to be together, but they're not. And so since her parents can't be together, she ultimately wants her mom to be happy. Even though you can tell that she doesn't really like Burke Dennings and you can see this in her eyes, she doesn't say it. She cares about her mom's happiness more. And I feel like that's a really nice synopsis of their relationship, how they support one another. And if we didn't have this moment, it wouldn't matter as much what happens to them afterward. What happens afterward? What's what's the next scene? What's your next scene? Shit goes down, man. <laughs> Shit goes down. It, it gets crazy. <laughs> this is so, one of the last moments that you get to see the sweet, innocent girl. Yeah. And so this is really one of the last moments where we see this sweet, perfect little nugget of a relationship and afterwards things start to slowly unravel. I do have uh, a scene that is William Friedkin's favorite scene. It's not one of mine. Uh-huh. So is this your number is, two or what? This is not my number two. This is William Friedkin's number so this one. This is a bonus? This is a bonus because it was the director's number one. Okay. So it's not part of my five. That's why we said five to seven scenes. <laughs> so it's one of those bonus we, we don't have to be such strict millennials that everything is a top 10. Are, are millennials strict about top 10s? Millennials are known for loving top 10 lists. Oh, I, think I do love top 10 lists. Yeah. It's accurate. Well, this is a top seven. So calm down, other millennials. <laughs> All right. Um, so this is William Friedkin's favorite scene, and this comes next in the movie. And it does jump ahead quite a bit. So since we've all already seen The Exorcist, we don't need to have all those other bits filled in. We already know by this point that poor little Reagan has gone through a series of tests. And now there's a detective at their door because all these tests have been done. Lots of weird stuff is happening. A man has died. And that was Burke Dennings, the director of the film. So at this point, Burke Dennings has fallen out of Reagan's window and now there's a detective on the case. Yeah. Lieutenant Kinderman, played by Lee J. Cobb. And this is William Friedkin's favorite scene. He calls it a cat and mouse chase of wits, of dialogue. He's at Chris McNeil's house. She offers him coffee. And Lee J. Cobb's character of Lieutenant Kinderman is very masterful and what he's saying to Chris without asking her questions, really, without accusing anybody. He just says something like, oh, yeah, Mr. Dennings fell out of the window and fell down all these flights of stairs and his head was turned around. I don't know if he told her that his head was turned around, but mm. he did say that in order for him to have been thrown out of that window, it would have taken great force that only an adult man could have done, kind of implying that it couldn't have been your daughter. But in his head, you know, the the subtext is it's your daughter. <laughs> and the entire time they're filming this scene, the camera is slowly zooming in on Chris McNeil's face. And you can see what she's thinking in her head. She's covering her mouth almost as a way to not betray herself or her daughter. And she looks briefly at Lieutenant Cobb. She looks off to the side. She's 
kind of trying to look everywhere except for Lieutenant Cobb, but William Free. Oh, hi, Jason. Jason's here. <laughs> uh, William Friedkin loves this scene because he thinks it's such a masterful dance between the performances of Ellen, Burst Ellen Burstein and Lee J. Cobb. Jason's come to join us, our, our uh, guest uh, podcatter. Guest podcatter. <laughs> <laughs> she's actually afraid of horror movies. She is. When there are loud sounds, she's the first one to hide under the under the couch. Yeah, she's a scary cat. Yeah, but that's all right. She can come hang out for the um, for the discussion. Yeah. Uh, so what I was saying was I love that um, the moment in in. Well, actually, there's two really good moments in that scene. One is where Chris McNeil asks Lieutenant Kinderman, would you like some more coffee? Expecting him to say no. And he's like, I would love another cup of coffee. Or he's like, yeah, sure. And, and she looks <laughs> so crestfallen. Like, Ugh. she's like, oh, shit. I thought that was my out. <laughs> I know. And that's exactly what William Friedkin says. He's like, oh, I love her look when she offers him coffee and then he says yes and right. she's just like oh damn it <laughs> and then the other moment where he's asking for her autograph and says it's for his daughter uh and she's like what's your daughter's name <laughs> he's like busted <laughs> he looks so sheepish he, he like kinda, actually it's for me <laughs> and he looks like really embarrassed he kind of smiles and blushes a little bit it is a really cute scene and william freaking was kind of saying that he thinks that was kinderman's way of softening the blow of subtly accusing her daughter of murder so he's going to kind of pander to her ego even if he really likes her as an actress he's going to try to soften the blow by asking her for an autograph and saying how hmm. much he likes her work but how is it that he accuses the daughter how is it that he accuses the daughter when he says that it must have been a strong man who twisted the guy's head because i think right after he says but there is nobody in your room but your daughter i don't know i don't know if, if what he actually believes i didn't get that he was particularly accusing reagan but he knows that there's something about the situation that's not right he has a look that everybody is a suspect including your daughter and like any good detective you can't rule anybody out just because they're a cute little kid <laughs> and by this point she's not that cute anymore so did he go upstairs and actually see he her? did not see her so so had he had seen her he would be like yep it was her yeah she did it <laughs> <laughs> so no question about Case that closed <laughs> yeah yeah, so I, I think what a good detective to not rule out this 12-year-old girl just because she's a 12-year-old girl. So, mm. And even when he meets Karis for the first time, he almost has a slight accusatory tone towards him. He's like, are there any priests that fit this description, knowing full well that Karis is a priest? Well, this guy is just accusatory. He is. But then he really quick goes back and flatters them. Like he flattered him by saying, oh, you look like a boxer. And oh, like you look like you work out. Sounds like his move. It's like he's he's trying to butter you up to get some information out of you. But I don't know if he actually believes or expect, expects anything that any of his assumptions. I think he's, he just... he's trying to find information. He's trying to catch somebody. Yeah. And he tries the whole gamut of tactics. So I think he's not ruling anybody out. He's not going to make any assumptions before he finds out truth. When I first saw his character, I think I was thinking, what's this guy's point in this movie? But the more that I watch the movie, the more I really appreciate his 
performance. And right. So character. what is his point then? What do you think he adds to the story? The doctors and the lieutenant are trying to bring the story and the reasons behind things happening in it to a more grounded realm, a more earthly realm. Yeah. Whereas the priests are taking things into a more religious area. And so you have this duality constantly of, okay, is this um, science or faith? Is it both? Can it be both? Or are these separate? Yeah. So I feel like after Chris has moved on from the doctors, and we've moved from the doctors to the priests. We're not in the clear. We're not just solely a faith-based movie now because we have Lieutenant um, Kinderman there. After the doctors are gone, he's that force that is causing that tug and that push-pull again between faith and I don't even know. Reality. Yet. Well, I don't even know if I would say reality because what's happening is definitely happening, but we're not sure of the reasons. It's like um, faith versus logic, maybe. Faith versus science. Yeah. Faith versus detective work. Yeah. yeah. Which is a science in a way. Yeah. Forensics. Right. Faith versus forensics. Right. So I feel like that is his purpose after the doctors are gone. He takes on that role. Anyway, so <laughs> that was the favorite scene of the director, William Friedkin. My next top scene is when... Chris McNeil meets Father Karras for the first time. And so by that point, Chris has been physically abused by Reagan. I think this is right after the scene where we have our infamous crucifix scene. Mm -hmm. In that scene, Reagan slaps or punches Chris and throws her across the floor. And so when Chris goes to meet Father Karras, she's already met every doctor in the book. She's met a few psychiatrists and all these doctors have basically said we're at a loss. We don't know what else to do. And they suggest that she finds a priest. And even when they suggest it to her, the main doctor that suggests it is kind of almost laughing at the idea like, okay, now don't go thinking that we think this is real because we are people of science, but do you believe in God? And she's like, well, no, I'm not very religious. And she's like, well, what about your daughter? She's like, I don't know, not to my knowledge. And so they're saying, well, we don't believe in this, but if your daughter does, then maybe a priest would be a good idea. So at this point, Chris is like, all right, I'll try anything because you guys have not been a whole lot of help. And so she goes to meet Father Karras and she has her shades on. She has obviously bruises underneath her sunglasses. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, she is explaining everything to Father Karras. And Father Karras is a very interesting character. He's a psychiatrist priest. And so because he struggles with this like duality of like science and faith and he feels a lot of guilt for things that have happened in his life. And so he starts to waver on his belief in God. How could all these bad things be happening if God exists? Mm -hmm. And so Chris comes to him at this point in his life and he's thinking, well, I'm not the best person for this because I don't even know if I believe anymore. She actually noticed him in a crowd when she was at work at her, you know, acting this big rally scene in front of the steps on you know on campus yeah and he loves movies as we establish later and so something about him was striking to her and then she when she's walking home after that day she sees him with dyer i think she sees him talking to another priest who's having inner conflict right okay that's what it was mm -hmm. and uh, she recognized him yeah so they had some sort of connection before yeah and Karis's best friend in the priesthood father dyer 
is actually a friend of Chris and she, and he goes to one of her parties one night. She discovers that Karis is a friend of Father Dyer. And so she kind of finds out through Dyer that Karis's mother has passed. But their paths keep crossing without them actually meeting. Right. So there's some sort of connection. They yeah. were fated to meet. Yeah. So totally like fate. Yeah. And Friedkin did say that those are big themes of the movie is the matter of fate and faith and how everything that we do is a matter of fate and we are fated to do every single thing that we do. He says that even our biology sometimes is our fate. Chris and Karis meeting, that was always going to happen. And that's why it seemed like their paths kept crossing almost, but not quite until this moment. But what I love about the scene is they end up on a park bench and Karis is almost trying to convince her out of the exorcism that she's asking for. And Karis is like, what, are you crazy? In order to do an exorcism, we would have to go back in time to the 1600s because they're just not done anymore. And he's like, I don't know one priest who's done an exorcism. Right. He is saying now we know about mental illness, whereas before exorcisms were used because we had no knowledge of other, you know, these things, these conditions. Yeah, these psychoses. And he's like, we need to just have your daughter observed for six months. And Chris knows that her daughter doesn't have six months. Um she doesn't have six months. She she's, doesn't she's, have. Uh, also running ragged. Yeah, she's at her wits end. And so the moment that I love the most in this scene is when they're sitting on that bench and Chris just looks up at the sky or whatever and cries out, Jesus Christ, won't somebody help me? And the way she says that line, oh, chills. <laughs> I get teary every time. Uh, thinking about it because she's so desperate and she's not religious but in, in that moment it seems like not is not so much an expletive to her but actually a plea for help mm -hmm. like at this point she is so desperate that she will believe in the ability of jesus christ to help her mm -hmm. um and it seems like she wants so desperately to believe in that because she doesn't know what else to, to believe in. Doctors and science have done nothing for her but cause more pain. She wants so badly for this person next to her, this priest, this man of the cloth, um, this person based in faith to be able to help her. But that's why I love that scene so much because it really, to me, oh, the way that Ellen Burstyn delivers that line, she just emotes such desperation that I feel it after watching it over and over again. I feel that desperation every time. When I was thinking about some of my favorite scenes, I thought like the opening scene when they're in Iraq is so good. But then I was like, wait, but then the next scene where they're, you know, it's like each scene is really good. This movie is a perfect movie. I feel like it is a perfect movie. And we'll go over that later when we get to our award ceremony. But the whole topic of giving something the axe it was really hard i found something <laughs> though but that was a hard one i was like oh nothing i will get rid of nothing in this movie but yeah add more in just like sometimes i do i was like can i add more in <laughs> yeah uh okay my third scene is the second time that father karis meets pazuzu inside reagan mm -hmm. uh the first meeting was interesting but what I really love is after he leaves the McNeil household and thinks about it and then comes back, 
It's like he's ready. Uh, the first time was kind of unsettling and jarring to him because Pazuzu knew about his mother having passed. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that's weird. Did Miss McNeil know that my mother died? Did she tell her daughter about it? That's odd. And he finds out that Chris did know that his mom died, but she absolutely did not tell Reagan about it. And so he went back home and he thought about it and came back ready to be like, I'm going to catch you, little girl, in your lies. <laughs> <laughs> and so when Karis meets Pazuzu, he walks into the room and Pazuzu opens up the drawer, almost like knowing that Karis is still in denial of its existence. And Karis looks at, at Reagan slash Pazuzu with this incredulity, like, did you do that? I love that scene so much when the drawer shoots open and Karis has this look of like, oh, did you do that? That was crazy. Do it again. <laughs> and the voice, like everything in this scene, it's like it's Reagan sitting in the bed looking all sassy and the voice of Mercedes McCambridge being like, uh-huh, I did that. And it's just this very... I don't know if sultry is not the right word, but very eerie, otherworldly, gravelly voice that just sounds really sneaky mm -hmm. and almost flirtatious. Like Pazuzu's flirting with Karis in this scene. Hmm. And ignore the fact that Pazuzu is in the shape and form of a 12-year-old girl. It's Pazuzu flirting with Father Karis, flirting with the other side, flirting with Faith. And he's like, do it again. And she's like, in due time, you just wait. And I think that is the same scene where she says, what an excellent day for an exorcism. The very famous line. And he's like, you would like that? You actually want that? And she's like, yeah. He's like, why? And Pazuzu's like, well, because it would bring us closer together. Ooh, the foreshadowing. Yes. And he's like, you mean it would bring the people inside Reagan closer together? And Pazuzu's like, no, it'll bring you closer to us. And Karis was like, hmm, interesting. But yes, so foreshadowy. Anyway, I and love And just scene. a chilling mm -hmm. scene, a chilling line to say. It's like this little girl is just like an innocent bystander. And there's this battle that's going to unfold between Pazuzu and Father Karis. Yeah. Yeah. Haunting. I love that scene. Yeah. Is that your scene? No. Oh, damn it. Okay. I, <laughs> That's I not think, my scene. I think I know what your scene is. I yeah, think I'm coming to it. I think it's pretty easy to find out. <laughs> Fine. Well, anyway, that's my third scene, which brings me to my number four. My penultimate scene of The Exorcist is The Exorcism. Mm. The actual exorcism where we get to meet Father Marin played by Max von Sydow. And that's when we get our, well, we've already met him in the beginning, but Chris McNeil gets to meet Father Marin. Karis gets to meet Father Marin. And when Father Marin arrives in his taxi cab, we get the tableau of the poster, the light coming from the street lamp, this kind of eerie, ethereal, bluish glow that just envelops him as he walks up the stairs to the house. And it is very ominous, but beautiful at the same time. Like I would love a painting of this tableau because it's yeah. so pretty and haunting. And the actual scene that I'm talking about, though, is when Father Marin 
is in the room with Pazuzu and Karis and the, and the three of them are there together and Karis and Marin are ready to battle. And it's this whole scene. So much happens in this one scene in this bedroom, these close quarters. It's just one thing after the other. And it's this constant back and forth of, of will and battle between the priests and Pazuzu and um, I think I like wrote down the sequence. Once the exorcism starts, Father Marin is so cool and collected and he just starts reciting a prayer and Pazuzu shouts, shove it up her ass, Marin. And then she spits in his face. He coolly takes off his glasses, wipes off the spit. Um, and then she yells, your mother sucks cocks in hell. The bed raises. Poor Karis is just stupefied. And uh, there's green ooze coming out her mouth. We get the head spin. We get the levitation. We get the power of Christ compels you over and over again. And then we get the Pazuzu tableau of Reagan kneeling in bed and the Pazuzu statue in front of her and the glow of Pazuzu and, and Reagan and her arm stretched upward, ending finally with Damien on the bed and a close-up of his face. And you can tell without saying a word that he's starting to go back on all of his, his thoughts of faith and how his faith was faltering. And you can tell in this moment, he's terrified at how much he believes now. Do you count this scene? Cause this scene is um, probably broke, can be broken down into several scenes. Yeah. So are you going from the moment we meet father Marin where he rolls up in the taxi to the moment where uh, they take a break essentially. And Karis is contemplating in the bed, his faith. I had to break it up. So my scene lasts from the minute Marin and Karis enter that room. So when they enter until Father Karis, you can tell he's wrestling with his faith and then they leave the room. So everything that happens in that room at that point in time is my scene. Yeah. But no, I could not include Father Marin rolling up in the taxi cab because that would be a different scene because stuff does happen in between. Yeah. Like those moments where... Um Father Karras is trying to give him some backstory and he's like, what does it matter? Yeah. And he's like, well, like, why bother? Yeah. He's and Damien's like, oh, well, there's several people inside. Do you want to know some backstory? And, and Marin's like, no, there's only one. He doesn't even say who he's like, there's only one. And you know, he knows. Yeah. <laughs> he's just so confident. Good job, Marin. Anyway, that's my, second to last scene it's pretty obvious why that scene is uh in your top scenes yeah i'm sure i mean if i had to pick like what i think would be most people's top scene i feel like that would be most people's top scene yeah because like that is the synopsis of the entire movie that's why we're here we are here for this exorcism we get everything this is the perfect nutshell of the movie the exorcist do you think this is my scene I think it's your scene. <laughs> this is my scene. Yes. Of course. How could it not be any other scene than yeah. The Exorcism? Yeah. The movie is called The Exorcist. Yep. So if I were to choose one scene, this is the scene that has been endlessly parry, parodied, copied, and all of the above, yeah. borrowed from, stolen from. Um, everything about this section of the movie is what you, it's like, it's like the big payoff at the end. Yeah. But- this is the scene where when you think of the exorcist, you think of Reagan's head spinning around. Mm -hmm. And it's not even the first time that her head spins. No, it that's is. the thing that, yeah, that's the thing that's kind of crazy is that it's not the first time that she 
projectile vomits exactly. on someone. It's not the first time her head spins. It's, it's not, not the, the first, first time, time the bed, bed shakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it is kind of like a culmination because now we have Father Marin there as yeah. well. And he just like, he, his character just comes in ready for action and just, all right, boom, let's do this. Yeah. And Marin is just like unflappable. Even when he has a giant loogie covering his eyeball, <laughs> he doesn't miss a beat. He keeps on with his prayer. He coolly wipes off his glasses. He takes a little towel and he just keeps going. And you have the feeling that he knows he will die tonight, but that still doesn't stop him. No. Oh, so powerful. So cool. He knew from the moment he got the telegram what he was going to do. Yeah. And you can tell just in the performance of the actor. Mm -hmm. So like his head just sinks. Like He doesn't even need to read the telegram. He just crumples it and puts it in his pocket. He just knows that Pazuzu is back. This demon that he has had to fight before. Uh, he's met Pazuzu in Iraq. And in he Africa. Knows. Oh, in Africa? Is that where he yeah. met Pazuzu? He, yeah, he so um, Father Marin had performed an exorcism that lasted for months that nearly killed him right. in Africa. And it caused him to have heart trouble. And now he has to take these little pills. So it's almost like as much as Chris McNeil and Father Karras's paths were connected and intertwined, so were Marin's and Pazuzu's paths. He and Pazuzu, their paths kept crossing throughout time. And Marin knew that this would be another battle of good versus evil and maybe the last one for him. Yeah, for me, this is another reason why it the scene is so incredible is not just because of the story, but how the this scene was created and all the work that went into it. The fact that when the characters are in there, you can see their breath. And yeah. as the scene intensifies, you just see these these like kind of um, these like exhale, like visible exhale breaths yeah. And um, as it gets more intense, it's just the the breathing becomes more intense. And they actually had to chill the set down with the, you know, refrigeration unit yeah. to 20 levels below that, zero. Yeah. 20 below zero. <laughs> that's what somebody said. We don't know if that's accurate, but somebody in one of the documentaries said that they had to chill it 20 degrees below zero. Definitely to temperatures that make it un uncomfortable for any of the actors to perform their job, yeah. especially Linda Blair. Linda Blair said that she was wearing a nightgown and long johns. Everyone else had giant ski suits on, so she was not comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> the coordination of the practical effects. So they had to have um, a bunch of crew members shaking the bed in the back. They had Reagan rigged up to you know, to do the levitation scene With wires. So everything about that scene that went into the scene and it makes it such a worthy climax to this movie. Yeah. Like that, every effort was well worth it. And I think someone said they could only shoot um, a few minutes at a time because once they started rolling, the set would heat up and they would lose the breath. So they had to stop and rechill and then start again. Yeah. So they couldn't just film this really emotionally fueled scene straight through. They had to film, stop, redress, rechill, and then film again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I heard that um, even the wires, a lot of thought went into the wires. They had to um, make them spotted, dark and light, dark and light, dark and light. So that way the lights could play trick on the wires and you wouldn't be able to see it as much. Shout out to Dick Smith. Yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah, I think I would agree that that is probably a lot of people's favorite scene of the movie. Mm -hmm. 
But you have one more scene I left. I have one more scene. To make it to this best of Exorcist. Yeah. But is this your favorite scene or was the last one your favorite scene? After I was done picking all my five scenes, my favorite scene is actually the one um, when Karis meets Pazuzu for the second time. Yeah. You've mentioned that one before. So I, I had a feeling that, that was going to be in there. Yeah. That was my favorite scene. That The flirtation between Pazuzu and Karis. Mm -hmm. It's so funny and just so unsettling. But also <laughs> I just really love Mercedes McCambridge's voice in that scene. It really showcases the versatility in how she created this character with just a voice. Impressive. So that one is my favorite scene. Uh, this last one, though, is in my top five of scenes from The Exorcist. And it's when after Father Karras has to take a break from The Exorcism because uh, Pazuzu has pulled no punches and Pazuzu has uh, said some stuff about his mother and um, tried to plead to his his humanity by saying Damien why and he's like you're not my mother <laughs> and Marin's like okay you need to leave you you are too emotionally invested I told you not to get this invested I told you to not believe Pazuzu you have to leave hey it's his first exorcism it's his first one he's learning on the job he's learning on the job and Marin knows that by making Karis leave that he will have to do this on his own and he might not make it but still for Karis' own good, he makes Karis leave. Yeah. So my last scene here is when we see Father Karis sitting on the entryway bench at the foot of the stairs or at the bottom of the stairs. And he has his head down and Chris comes out of her office or whatever room where she was. And she just looks at Karis and she says, is it over? And Karis, without saying a word, just shakes his head like, no, it's not over. And Chris says, is she going to die? And the way that she says it, you you can tell that she's thinking, I'm ready for you to say yes, because I know that you are my last option. And it doesn't sound good from what I can hear. It doesn't look good from looking at your face. And so Chris is prepared to hear Kara say, yeah, she might. But instead, <sighs> I get so emotional. <laughs> and so he's like, no. And he looks up at the stairs and he walks up the stairs and you know that he knows he's going to die. Ooh, hold on. Got to take a break. This movie is so good. And like this moment when Karis, okay, so this was in our top gut-wrenching death scenes. And this is why, because this is what it makes me do. <laughs> <laughs> I get really emotional thinking about Karis and his decision to go back into that room because that decision means that he's going to die. And the way that he says no, he's like, she's not going to die because I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life for that little girl that I don't know. And somebody said in one of the features that um, Ray Bradbury calls this a love story because it's a love story between Karis and Reagan. He has this love for this little girl that he's never met. He's only ever met Pazuzu. And he still is going to sacrifice himself for this little girl that he doesn't know because she is a little girl. She's just 12. So he goes back into that room and that's where my scene ends. So he, not even the scene where he jumps out the window. Not even that. It's just that one scene on that bench where he is about to give up. But then Chris comes out and asks if Reagan's going to die. And he makes the decision right, right there that no, she's not going to die. 
And it's also very recent for him to know or to have faith in God. His faith was faltering. And the irony that now that he finally believes, he has to do the number one sin in Catholicism and accept this demon into him and kill himself. Mm. So it's all of these thoughts that are flooding into his mind at this one moment. So he believes in God now, but he has to kill himself and therefore sacrifice his his entry into heaven. Knowing all of that, he makes the ultimate sacrifice and goes to save this little girl that he's never met. He sacrifices his soul. He does. So that's it. Those are my top scenes of The Exorcist. <laughs> oh, such a good movie. I love it so much. And it's so weird to me. Like Every time I watch it, I love it even more. And I just think, what was I doing not watching this movie before a couple years ago? <laughs> You're missing out on years of tears. Years of tears. Oh, <laughs> so emotional. <laughs> Does anybody else cry when they watch The Exorcist? <laughs> oh man okay i feel really hot now <laughs> so that's it that's your top five we even included a top the top scene from william freakin and my top scene yeah so those are the top seven yeah well it's the top six we well, only covered six scenes no we covered seven. Oh, you're right top six because you had one of mine double up top yeah. six <laughs> Sorry, millennials. Um, yeah, I just want to quickly ask you about the sequels. So uh, which of the sequels have you seen? And what, okay, aside from The Exorcist, and we have The Exorcist Believer coming out very soon. It'll mm -hmm. probably be out by the time this episode's released. It's true. And we will have most likely seen it by that time. But that's yet to be seen. We don't know. Literally yet to be seen yet anyways be seen. um so we have a, num a number of the other sequels from the exorcist so there's exorcist 2 the heretic there's exorcist 3 mm -hmm. does that have a subtitle i don't think it does i think it's just the exorcist 3 yeah and that's the one directed by william peter blatty right yeah. yeah so there's also um exorcist the beginning then there's another one called dominion and it's a prequel to the exorcist what okay so i did not know that a couple of these existed uh, <laughs> <laughs> i have seen exorcist heretic i actually saw that one before i saw exorcist mm -hmm. i saw heretic i think when i was like in high school it was on the sci-fi channel and i was like mm locusts gross so you saw heretic before you saw the exorcist yeah and that might have been why i never watched the exorcist because <laughs> that was my intro and i was like mm, this sucks <laughs> you're like the first one's got to be horrible if this one was that bad i was like Ugh, locusts you know i actually kind of like the exorcist heretic it's kind of I, okay in high school i did not like it but re-watching it as an adult i was like oh it's kind of funny she gets tap dance it takes a little bit more of a sci-fi angle yeah where um, actually, I, I'm not going to talk about it, but any yeah, I don't want to spoil The Exorcist 2 for anyone. Yeah. But anyways, um, there are some things to to really enjoy about the movie. And we get to see more of Reagan as, yeah. as a teenager. Yeah, like a and that is cool. And we get to see more of, I think, the secretary, Sharon. Yeah. Yeah. She shows up in yeah. Heretics. So yeah. that's cool to see some of these characters come back, not yeah. just Reagan. We see Sharon come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people hated it, but it makes sense why so many people would hate 
The Exorcist 2 because yeah. you're comparing it to the first one. Yeah. It's and it's a total letdown, especially if you were to have seen this in the theaters. If you are a fan of The Exorcist and you love the first movie, it's just like such a good movie. And, um, and then The Exorcist 2 comes out and you watch this, you're like, what the hell is this bullshit? <laughs> She's tap dancing. Yeah. But I think if you separate yourself, if you separate The Exorcist 2 from the first one, in a way like you can do with Halloween three and maybe in the future, the way some people might do with Halloween ends, maybe in the future, guys, <laughs> look forward to that. Um, you can really uh, you can kind of appreciate where it was going. I actually enjoyed it, to be honest with you. That yeah. might be a hot take. I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of cool. Maybe this can be in our episode of a unpopular opinions that we're develop <laughs> developing yeah the liver alone episode top 10 <laughs> our unpopular opinions keep an eye out for that one um might include jaws 4 who knows but uh, then the exorcist 3 we also watched fairly recently and loved that one yeah that one i think is a um, fan favorite it is a fan favorite i mean i i want to say a lot of that has to do with brad Dorif. yeah <laughs> but also I think um it was nice to have William Peter Blatty, you know, throw his hand in the ring. Right. Um more so than in the first one. And he directed the third one too. Yeah, so he directed and wrote the third one. He um he wrote the first one and wanted to play Father Karis. He told William Friedkin, I will give you all of my profits of the movie if you let me play Father Karis. And Friedkin's like, no, I'm sorry. I can't let you do that. <laughs> Good decision. I know. And then another little tidbit here, Friedkin had actually already cast Father Karis. He had cast an actor, Stacey Keach, who plays the dad in the show Titus that I like. Ever, anyone remember Titus? <laughs> I really liked a show called Titus. I never thought we'd be talking about the 90s or early 2000s sitcom Titus on this Very podcast. Very underrated. I highly recommend it. Anyway, the dad <laughs> is played by Stacey Keach, and he was supposed to be Father Karis. And then Freakin saw a play called That Championship Year that was written by Jason Miller, who we know as Father Karis. And um, Friedkin went up to Miller and said, oh, hey, I liked your play. I'm William Friedkin. I'm directing this movie called The Exorcist and then went on his merry way. And then Miller contacted Friedkin and said, I read the book. I love it. I'm the guy. I'm your father, Karis. And Friedkin's like, cool that you liked the book, but no, it's already been cast. And uh, Miller's like, no, I promise you, I am your father, Karis. Let me audition. Let me read for you. And Freakin's like, no, I have the role cast. And he's getting annoyed. And Miller's like, let me just come out. I'll fly out on my own dime. Um, and I will just read for you. And if and um, anyway, so Freakin's like, fine, you come out here on your own dime. I will let you read for me and then I'll give you the footage to show to your grandkids, but I'm not recasting this role. Miller went out there and he read, he actually got to read with Ellen Burstein and then Freakin was blown away. He's like, oh man, you're right. You are my father, Karis. <laughs> so they had to pay Stacy Keach his full salary just to let him out of the contract and then hire Jason Miller because Jason Miller 
was like this character. He had studied to be a priest and then he dropped out of the priesthood. So he really felt like he identified with Father Karras. It almost seems like that would be the way to get a part in this role. You just got to demand it. Yeah. You guys I, can say, see, I can see William Freakin being like, all right, I like that this guy's demanding. Yeah. He knows that this is his role. All right, let's get into <laughs> the uh, let's get into the award ceremony. Yep. All right. I may have snuck in a couple new awards. Don't ask questions. <laughs> okay. It's so what happens when I am giving awards to a movie that I really like and I can't just give one award. So I create a new category just for something to get an award. Right. Yeah. That's why the award category even exists <laughs> to show off my love for something all right golden gut who or what gets the golden gut for this film i am going to give my golden gut award to linda blair mm, whoa yeah okay tell me why because she was a young girl who went through lots of shit to give us this character mm. reagan possessed by pazuzu just just all the stuff that she had to go through the makeup the appliances, the um, pr physical pain that was brought about her yeah. to give us this character should not be overlooked. Yeah. Being in a nightgown in below 20 degree um, temperatures. And she did a fabulous job as the non-possessed yeah. Reagan. I really love non-possessed Reagan. Oh, she was so good. Yeah. So I know that, you know, the actual... Reagan possessed by Pazuzu is kind of a collaboration with other actors, Eileen Dietz mm -hmm. and Mercedes McCambridge. Mm -hmm. And she was um, very closely directed by William Friedkin for that performance. Yeah. And Linda does credit William Friedkin a lot. She's like, he directed every bit of Reagan. Right. But she still carried it out and yeah. she is still the face of the franchise. Yeah. Even if you haven't seen The Exorcist, you've seen her face. Yeah. You know what she looks you like. You know the name Linda Blair. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to give it to Linda Blair. She's going like to get my that. golden gut. I like that. Linda Blair even did say in, in an interview, she's like, I don't think people realize how much I went through as a, as a kid making this movie, um, like how hard it was on me. But it was. And on all the crew... Um, said throughout every interview how great it was to work with her, how she was just so happy. She would come out of a take uh, or she would snap back into like her normal kid self after each take. And nobody was like, oh man, Linda Blair, she was a kid. So it was hard to work with a kid. Um, <laughs> everyone had nothing good to say about working with her. And so I think for Linda Blair, like she was constantly putting on a a brave face, even if she was in pain. Uh, and she just seemed like a really pleasant person, mm -hmm. even as a 12-year-old. So, yes. Cool. So who yeah. gets your golden gut? Because I do love so many things about this movie, I give my golden gut to William Friedkin. Mm. And this is the first time that I'm giving a golden gut to the director. Usually I'd give it to something that's more specific, but because everything i feel like he really thought about every aspect of this movie from the casting of or the recasting of father Karras to the tubular bells that he selected to be that iconic soundtrack to not using a score or a soundtrack to purposely scare the audience or direct the audience and how they should feel because there are so many scenes that are very intense and you realize that there's no music 
to mm. those scenes. It's just the intensity of the scene, the subject matter and the actors um, to certain shots that were framed that he modeled after paintings and painters that he liked, like Vermeer. Mm -hmm. He really had a very detailed eye in every aspect of this film. Everything came together because of some vision or idea that William Friedkin had, and he put it in the movie. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Good choice. Thank you. All right. And then I have a made up award. All right. What's your go ahead? I have a silver gut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who get what gets your silver gut? Okay. So my silver gut goes to Mercedes McCambridge. Ooh, okay. Because I just feel like this movie would not be nearly as creepy without that voice. Initially, Friedkin tried a male voice that was very really deep and bassy and he said it just didn't seem right. And then you do watch some clips where it's just Reagan talking. And she looks creepy, but she still sounds like a little kid, so it's not as creepy. And then he came across Mercedes McCambridge, and he liked her in some older westerns, and he thought, okay, I think she can have a kind of androgynous voice, and that's what he wanted. And so he asked her, can you do this role? And Mercedes McCambridge said that she was a suicidal alcoholic, and she was sober, but in order to do this role, she would need to be drinking alcohol, smoking a lot, and eating raw eggs in between takes. <laughs> she would also have to feel pain while vocalizing. So she would have to be tied to a chair while squatting. And then she would have to have two priests who were her friends on site. So that way after each take, she could be untied and collapse in their arms and cry. Oh, my God. So, That's about as method as you can get. Yes. <laughs> so this is coming from William Friedkin. He said that she did this. And oh my God, if that's true, if she did this after every single take, crazy. <laughs> she has to get some award. And I love her voice so much in this movie. And to me, I don't know if I would love this movie as much if I didn't have that voice. Right. So, and we've said this many times, but every demon voice after this movie has been it, inferior. It pales in comparison. This is the iconic demon voice. But I guess if Mercedes McCambridge is putting that much effort into this performance, then yeah, it deserves at least a silver. It deserves a silver <laughs> gut. I'm like, man, I feel like this should have gotten nominated for an Academy Award. Her voice. Yeah. All right. Next award. I don't have a silver gut. I she know. at least just kind of sprung that out of nowhere. I did. So. I just made it up for today. I'll just say my silver gut is Tubular Bells. I like that. Because that soundtrack is almost as iconic as the movie. Yeah. You can play that soundtrack and people will be freaked out. And I can't sing it, but I can hear it <laughs> in my head. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What gets your best intestines award? My best intestine award goes to Father Karras. Of course. How'd you get out? So now we have Freddie. Freddie's here. Freddie somehow bust out of her room. All right. So Freddie's with us here for the um, best intestines best award. Intestines. I'm giving it to Father Karras. How mm. could you not give it to anything other than Father Karras? I give it to Burke Dennings. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm sorry. Just, yeah, the way in which his neck was twisted. Yeah, the way they described his neck twisting all the way around. Yeah. No, I agree. Goes to Father Cares for sure. There aren't many deaths in the movie. Oh, wait, no, you do have Marin. But yeah, 
I yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, making the ultimate sacrifice and that scene that you described where he is deciding right there that he's going to do this thing is so powerful. Yeah, yeah it def- I definitely give my best intestines to Father Karras. And um, William Friedkin says that he thinks the ending of the movie is the weakest point of the movie because when Father Karras is punching Pazuzu in the face or Reagan in the face. And mm-hmm. he's shouting at Pazuzu, come into me, take me. And Pazuzu does. Pazuzu goes into Karis and we see, we see Father Karis's eyes flash yellow and then he suppresses it. And then his eyes go back to Karis and he jumps out the window. And Freakin feels like that's confusing. He's like, well, because the eyes changed back to Father Karras's eyes, that means that Pazuzu left his body and he killed himself for no reason. And <laughs> I want to disagree with the director of this film because I feel like just because the eyes flashed back to Karras doesn't necessarily mean that Pazuzu left his body. Right. I feel like it meant, to me, it means that he was able to suppress Pazuzu enough to make the volitional choice as Karis to jump out the window. It still means that Pazuzu was inside of him. That way he didn't have to die for no reason. I never got that sense that Pazuzu had left Father Karis. I think you're, you just accept it. So the next word is the second kidney. Which character would you like to see in a sequel or spinoff? I would like to see Lieutenant Kinderman in a sequel because we did. And I liked it. <laughs> yeah, if we had like a prequel of Karis or a prequel of Marin, I feel like it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work as well because we know their end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did like seeing Kinderman show up in Exorcist 3. So check that one out. <laughs> How about you? Um, I chose Linda Blair for the second kidney yeah, because we all know that we did get to see a little bit more of Reagan in the Exorcist 2, the mm-hmm. heretic, but because it was shat upon by a lot of people. I feel like we it would be nice to see Linda Blair as an adult, ah. maybe um, further on in her life. Uh, I think there is a TV series that might cover that, but I haven't seen it. Mm. Interesting. Anyways, um, I want to see a movie version yeah. that ignores that TV series. Yeah. And I will say <laughs> that I've only seen trailer one of Exorcist Believer, and I have tried very hard not to see at the trailer too. So I'm hoping that Linda Blair does reprise her role in Exorcist yeah. Believer. Well, so. I'm I'm also like not um, not just like a little cameo. Like I just want to see more of more of her story, oh. especially now knowing that in the second one. Well, this is a little bit of a spoiler for the second one. Um, skip forward ten seconds. So in the second one, it's explained that yeah. because she has this um, psychic, psychic healing power, yeah, that's why Pazuzu was attracted to to Reagan. Yeah, like oh, psychic. That sounds fun. Yeah, and she used that it, they used that little machine to you know to like tune into her brain waves and all that. Well, and, maybe she became psychic after Pazuzu inhabited her body for a month or so. Well, I think it's insinuated in the second one that she already had that oh, gift. Okay. So I would like to see more of this. Um, yeah. So I'm going to give my second intest- second kidney yeah. to, uh, to Linda Blair. I like that. Good. 
Yeah. And she, you know, she has, she's, she went on and did other horror movies and other movies, yeah. but I feel like because she was a kid actor and as she kind of grew up and became a teenager, mm -hmm. she wasn't given very great of roles. Yeah. So, I mean, she's, she was like, she had a cameo in Scream, like a little kind of bit. Oh part. my gosh. The smallest cameo in Scream. Yeah. But she yeah. needs People some bigger have a roles. right to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I have another made-up role called the Spleen Stealer. <laughs> what is that? What is the Spleen Stealer? <laughs> is my favorite performance. Okay. Non-vocal performance. Okay. Non-vocal. Well, because I said my silver gut went to Mercedes McCambridge. Okay. So that's a performance. But my uh, favorite performance with like a human person uh, was. Uh, my my spleen stealer, which goes to Ellen Burstyn, yeah, because I love every scene with Ellen Burstyn, and she has to get some awards, so she gets something. She gets a gut spleen, little spleen gut. Okay, and <laughs> so I just wanted to give her something because I do love every single scene that she's in. She's just wrought with emotion from the minute she has to go to the doctors and see what's wrong with her daughter. Um, and it doesn't let up, but also she's not just playing sad the whole time. She's not just crying the whole time. You see different nuances within her sad, within her depression, within her loss, her grief, her despair. You see all of these little nuances with every single scene that goes by. Um, even the, the scene when the assistant director comes into her house and says that Burke Dennings is dead. She does not immediately react. She looks so burnt out. Like mm, she mm. doesn't have any more emotion left to even grieve for this very dear friend of hers. It's almost like she's on autopilot and she's tired and she has like, you know, tears at the ready at all times, but she doesn't have the strength to cry at that moment for mm. Burke Denning's death. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really strong and interesting choice. So Ellen Burstein gets a second. She gets a, a spleen stealer <laughs> for stealing all the scenes that she's in. I was also not prepared for that award. So I yeah, know. same double. Sorry. Same goes for you, double? Yeah. Good. <laughs> all right. And the last non-award go is the axe. The what axe. Gets Which axe? element or character would you cut from the film? Yeah. You tell me. Uh, I mean, what can you cut from this film? This film's a perfect film. There's nothing yeah. that should be cut. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about it and I was thinking, all right, maybe I can do um, with a little less of that quack mansplaining doctor. <laughs> just because just because he's the worst character in the. Yeah, he's pretty book. obnoxious. Yeah. I was thinking that, too. There are a lot of scenes of him being like, no, well, this is science. And um, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. Let's give her some Ritalin. <laughs> but his character is necessary because it just shows you the madness that uh chris mcneil is going through yeah. this whole time so you know can i just the only reason why i gave him the axe is because he was my least favorite character yeah. in the movie maybe just like one less scene of his you yeah know? yeah <laughs> give him a little less screen time uh my axe goes to um I was trying to think really hard about it too. So this was not an easy one, but I feel like I found a good one to give the ax to. It's Kinderman connecting the sacrilegious graffiti in the church to Burke Denning's death. I thought that was a really tenuous connection. Like it didn't seem very strong. Like mm. why would he immediately jump? 
And he tried to explain it, but it seemed kind of flimsy. It seemed like a kind of weak plot device just to get this lieutenant into the scene. So him connecting the graffiti in the church saying, oh, well, it seems like a cult behavior, like maybe a cult did this to the church. And then Burke Dennings died and his head was twisted all the way around. That sounds like witchcraft. So maybe these things are connected. I would have rather had them just omit him saying, well, I'm investigating these church, these church graffiti things mm. and just have him straight jump into investigating the death of Burke Dennings. Mm. I feel like that would have made more sense. Yeah. Um, but then we wouldn't have gotten that first meeting with the detective and Karis and him saying, hey, what do you think's going on with these church graffitis? <laughs> but they could have figured out some other way to get the lieutenant meeting Karis. Right. Or have him meet Karis a little bit later. Yeah. I just did not like that connection between Mother Mary had a fake horned penis Therefore, whoever did that also twisted this guy's head all the way around. That was weak. Yeah, that's actually an interesting axe choice. And yeah. I I like that. Thank I like you. that. Yeah, that's Thank a good you. one. All right. Let's move on to the poster. Oh, yeah. What's your rating of the poster for <gasps> The Exorcist? I love this poster. This is one of my favorite posters for a horror movie. Right. So you're going to get a tattoo it. of it? I am going to get an oil painting. <laughs> an oil painting. <laughs> yeah, because William Friedkin really loved painters and artists and stuff. And he modeled a lot of the scenes after certain paintings that he liked. In fact, that tableau of the poster, he modeled after a Magritte painting. Mm. And I would like, in honor of William Friedkin, rest in peace, I would like to have an oil painting of this poster lovely thank you and then you can put that in your podcasting I'll room i'll put that in my podcast room yeah how about you um i would put the poster in my podcasting room yep and i would have a sticker of it i'd have a shirt yeah. i'd have all kinds of stuff a little stuffed reagan doll yeah it's Carry iconic it it's great great right. composition moody it is very moody i love it it's ominous yeah yeah Classic, mm -hmm. classic poster. Agreed. So moving on to our blockbuster rating. Is this a staff pick for you? Is it a back alley dumpster flick? How dare you even <laughs> ask that? <laughs> you get two options. I'm not even going to give you the main shelf for bargain bin Staff option. pick or back alley dumpster? Well, going on the staff pick shelf for at least half the year. Yeah. So if I have like, you know, to rotate it out every so often for like a special theme movie day, then maybe, but it will be my staff pick for at least 50% of my time working at Blockbuster. It's got to be in your staff pick for this year because this year is the <gasps> 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. You're right. So yeah, easy staff pick here. The yeah. Exorcist is one of the best um, theological thrillers yeah. of all time. That's a new subgenre that I had not heard until today. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it would, you're right because it is the 50th anniversary. It would definitely be in my staff picks for at least this entire year, every yeah. single week of this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. What are your final thoughts on the exorcist? What, uh, so beautiful, such a beautiful, sweet representation of intertwining relationships. And as William Freakin said, uh, fate and faith. 
All right. Me the same double. Me the same double. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, William Friedkin. Yes. Thank you, William Friedkin, for this beautiful film. Yeah. And um, I hope that Believer is even 30% as good as The Exorcist. Or will it suck cocks in hell? <laughs> <laughs> all right that, sorry david gordon no that was actually great <laughs> that about does it for this episode if you like what you've heard please like subscribe follow give us a rating on um apple music whatever yeah yeah Spotify. we have a patreon account now yeah we have a couple of bonus episodes That's on true. there at the moment more to come so go ahead and check that out. It is patreon.com forward slash gutted horror podcast. You can also go old school and just send us an email, gutted horror podcast yeah. at gmail.com. Thank you for watching and are listening. This has been another episode of gutted. gutted.